Yes, Palm Sunday coming a little bit early, although Lent began this week, and so our mind is already on the coming Easter and the coming spring. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, to earth, to fulfill that, to make it more known. This is how uh, the gospel of Mark began, Mark 1.15. Jesus says, the time has come, the time is now, the kingdom of God is at hand or near or graspable. It's, it's, it's coming and is, is here. So repent and believe the good news. Repentance is a, a turning, a turning of mind, a turning of thinking, a right thinking that leads to right action. And Jesus' very next words after declaring the kingdom of God is near is, is this, is an invitation. Come, follow me. And we receive that today. The kingdom of God is near. Repent, come, follow me. It's very important for what we see take place in this passage in chapter 11. And essentially, the rest of this letter, as we've been seeing, is Jesus revealing, making known the kingdom of God more and more in lots of different ways, through signs, through wonders, through teaching, through his very presence, and so many struggling to perceive it, to receive it, to understand it, and kind of the stumbling even of the disciples, that it's a journey for them, it's progressive for them. Sometimes the last and least likely ones are the ones that grasp it, that rise up with this faith and receive the kingdom and those that we would expect to understand it, to know the prophecies, to receive it, the Jewish people, the religious leaders are the ones that struggle the most because they have their own ways and their own agenda, their own power and their own desires for who the Messiah would be. And Jesus turns it upside down. We just came off the passage where Jesus again healed the blind man, Bartimaeus. Certainly very important for this blind man, but also emblematic for all who had come to Jesus to have their eyes open. This is the work that Jesus wants to do spiritually for all peoples, who all who come to him. The kingdom of God is being revealed again in this passage, a very well-known event, a famous event, celebrated by Christians for 2,000 years, the, known as the Palm Sunday, often called the triumphant entry, I've called it the anticlimactic entry because according to Mark, with, there's this crescendo and then it just dissolves. It's not what we would expect. And I believe Mark is making a contrast as I'll seek to point out. Again, Jesus though is inaugurating an upside down kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world, which is great news for us. This kingdom means it will neither operate or look like worldly kingdoms with worldly rulers who rule and exert power by force. And this is difficult for all who would follow Jesus to grasp. We want Jesus often in our ways, in our image, and according to our agenda. And Israel certainly was longing for a king. They were under Roman oppression, Roman rule. And while there, there was more freedom than we might see in our world under other oppressive leaders, they still didn't have complete freedom. And so they were praying for a king to come in the line of David, the long-promised Messiah, who would deliver, who would conquer, who would triumph, who would bring freedom, who would establish peace, who would establish them as a people. And Jesus was that king and would do those things, but not in the way that they thought he would or hoped he would to vanquish Rome. His kingdom is not of this world. Jesus would ultimately triumph and deliver over greater oppressors, greater enemies, evil sin and death. He was coming to do eternal things, not just to restore a nation, but to redeem all peoples, 
to make for himself a kingdom people. Mark has been masterfully revealing this contrast throughout his letter, the unexpected upside-down kingdom and the struggle of so many to perceive and to receive it. How do earthly rulers seek to establish their reign through power, through force, through threats, through violence, through a disregard ultimately of human life for what they would call is the greater good of the empire, and we're seeing it on full display once again, which is just, I think, mind-boggling for so many. It seems like we're repeating the early 1900s in more ways than one. Thought we've moved past that. For anyone that's a progressivist, seeing where, where we're going, to see these images, I think, just uh, shakes us to our, our core. Ultimately, we are, we are kingdom progressivists. God is progressing his work throughout his world until it is finally fulfilled. And things like this remind us that no effort of humanity can accomplish it, but only a king who is other, a king who is wholly other. Jesus establishes his kingdom in meekness. By peace and service, he brings healing by the proclamation of, of good news, by honoring the sanctity of all life especially those oppressed, marginalized, and dismissed. By bringing love, by yielding his life, he is victorious. This passage, as I mentioned, has this crescendo to it. The king has come. Jesus is following in line with the prophecies. He's, he's, he's in some, some ways acting like a king coming to a city to rule and to reign. But anyone that was paying attention would see that he's doing it in a totally other kind of way. It was the Passover week. And, and Passover was one of those week-long celebrations. There were a few on the Jewish calendar that many would come in pilgrimage from the surrounding regions to the city to celebrate. The, the, the uh, historian, the Jewish historian Josephus describes a Passover week that happened years after this one that was estimated to have 2.7 million people in the city of Jerusalem. Amazing. There could have been tens of thousands of people descending upon Jerusalem. As, so think about the scene as Jesus is, is coming in. There are crowds. They're there largely for something else. And that's why you see these disciples and those with Jesus kind of going ahead of him and stirring things up. There were likely hundreds, if not more, still following Jesus kind of in that outer circle as he journeyed with them, as well as there were his close 12, there were many others. And they're setting the scene, intensifying the scene. Those who went ahead and those who, those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest bringing their cloaks and their palm branches, waving a spectacle with praise and celebration. I think it's interesting. Jesus had called his disciples to follow him. And what does Mark say? That many who were with him went ahead of him, stirring up the crowd and shouting, maybe believing that they were doing the will of God. We're, we're making, making the way for Jesus. We're bringing in the king we're announcing his presence. These are all good things, of course. And yet we have to ask ourselves, and by the way the story runs itself out, is this what Jesus wanted? He has a different pace and a different way and a different agenda. And I think we can do the same thing today. 
We can get out ahead in our own agenda, ahead of Jesus, even, even believing. We're proclaiming him. We're making, way, we're making known his ways. Many have attracted large crowds with great energy behind it, fully in their own strength and their own agenda. When Jesus has a totally different pace, when Jesus has said to his disciples, follow me, be with me, be at my pace. And his pace that day was upon a donkey. Now rooted in the minds of any Jew at this time would have been a different triumphal entry. About a century earlier, there was, there was a, a massive military uprising against the Syrians. And it was an unexpected victory for the Jewish people led by a man named Judas Maccabeus. It's recorded in, in, in the apocryphal books, the, the Maccabees. And when Judas triumphed, known as Judas the Hammer, later he's nicknamed, he came into the city to a very similar scene, shouts of triumph, a processional, palm branches, but he was riding in a chariot. And they were celebrating victory over the oppressive Syrian nation. And they were, he was coming to cleanse and restore and renew the temple, God's presence there because it had been desecrated. In, in 1 Maccabees 13, which you can find online, it's probably not in most of your Bibles, maybe if you have an NRSV, it may be included. 1 Maccabees 13, 51. On the 23rd day of the second month, in the 170th first year, the Jews entered the city and the temple courts with praise and palm branches, with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. Simon decreed that every year they should celebrate this day with rejoicing. So the Jews were very accustomed to this kind of a celebration now here being stirred up is, is another king. Could it be the Messiah? The Christ has been announced. Some are believing it is him. Now, he, he doesn't seem to be a warrior. He's a rabbi. But there's these rumors swirling around that he has supernatural power, incredible wisdom. And if, perhaps he's the one. And so you can see why the disciples went ahead to bring him into the city. And yet Jesus said, bring me a donkey. He's not in a chariot. He's not on a war horse. He's sitting upon a donkey, a lowly servant animal. Jesus would come to fulfill the prophecy that should have been fully in the minds of the Jewish people, but in their recent history, they're thinking, here's another Judas, the hammer. They should have been thinking of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous, having salvation but gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This was their history. This was the prophecy of the coming king, and Jesus was making it very clear to anyone that was paying attention. And he had been telling his disciples repeatedly exactly what was going to happen when he came into the city. He was going to yield his life, be arrested and accused, was going to go to the cross, to the grave, but was going to rise again. This is what should have been in their minds 
They should have been fully thinking of this prophecy, and it should have been emblematic when Jesus sat upon the donkey. Maybe they just didn't want this kind of Messiah, this kind of deliverer, this kind of king. They wanted one who would utterly destroy and break the back of the Roman Empire and establish their nation again in prosperity. The king, the long-awaited king, like David, but greater. Do we want the Jesus who comes to serve, to wash the feet of even his enemies? Do we want the Jesus that we see in Revelation coming on the war horse with a sword from his mouth to bring wrath and justice upon all evil and all oppressors? I think it's right to wrestle with that, but I think also we can put Jesus, as so many have, into our own image and our own agenda and declare how he must deliver, conquer, and triumph. And Jesus seems to establish his kingdom in other ways. It's not wrong to long for justice and mercy and righteousness, yet we must not just yield and surrender to King Jesus and to his coming kingdom, but to long for it and to celebrate all that he is and all that he is not. Our world doesn't need another earthly kingdom and empire. It needs one that's wholly other, wholly other, that is established in love and grace and mercy with perfect justice. Seemingly to make the point that Jesus wasn't playing by their rules nor interested in fulfilling their agenda, Mark ends the whole scene anticlimactically. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts, looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he left the city, calling the 12 to him. He took it all in, the crowds, the cacophony, the courts, And he turned and walked away. They were ready to crown him as king. Figuratively to seat him upon the throne. But he called his twelve to him and left the city. I think there's a subtle but maybe ominous irony in this picture. And even in what Mark says. It was already late. Likely late in the day to be sure. But could we not read that as it was already too late for the temple, for the nation, for the old ways? It was already too late. Jesus hadn't come for restoration, but for resurrection, for redemption, to make all things new. The old ways are dead. He would bring new life. The old ways are but a shadow. He was the substance. The new covenant was coming in his blood. To fulfill the covenant, new wine needs new wineskins. This is the beginning of the evidence that Jesus is the true temple. All of these courts and these stones will be broken down, he'll say, in just a short while. But God's presence has come in him. He is the temple. And that, that presence of God then will extend to his people who become the very dwelling place of God through the power of the Spirit. The old is gone. The new has come. While praying for Ukraine this week, while 
struggling how to pray, and if, if you've tried to enter into that, I bet you have too, wondering, what just do I pray? How do I pray for? And how do I pray against in the heart of God? Do we pray for the soul of Putin, an evil dictator? Do we pray against his ability to rule or to command? Do we, do we pray for the salvation of his soul or for him to be struck down? Let's continue to wrestle with the heart of God, knowing that there is one king above all. But as then meditating on this picture, this ancient picture of Jesus coming in, into the city of Jerusalem, I saw Jesus walking into Moscow across the Red Square, into the Kremlin, and looking around and beholding the, the cathedrals and the towers. An evidence or an, an intentional evidence of worldly, earthly power or glamour. And beholding it all, taking it all in, and declaring it is too late, and walking away. I believe the heart of Jesus would be the same. All of these stones will, will be broken down. They will crumble. He is not swayed by, by earthly displays of power or grandeur. He's coming to establish his kingdom on earth. And we could pray, whatever is emblematic, Jesus, break it down now, destroy it now. But just as he did in Jerusalem that day, he beheld it all and walked away, leaving the structures in place for the time. Seemingly, he is doing the same, where the heart of God's people cries, Hosanna, from the Hebrew, deliver now, save now, not later. Don't leave, don't walk away. Don't just declare it evil and leave nothing to be done. Bring your justice now. God is not ignorant or aloof, nor apart from the hurting and the suffering. And his will and his way will be accomplished, often not in our will, in our way. While we can wrestle with it, we should worship for it, to say he is not the God in our image. He is God alone. He will establish his kingdom in his time. And rightly we say, Hosanna. The Spirit brought me another sobering vision to try to bring it more closely home as we try to be humble and receive his word. If Jesus was to walk into, well, let's say, the National Association of Evangelicals and look around, Probably not at its towers or cathedrals, but its structures and its systems. Would he say the same? It is too late. Has he already declared that and walked away? If Jesus were coming into our city today, into Seattle or into Redmond, beholding it all, one, would there be a crowd? Would we even take notice? What would he say? What would he declare? Has he already spoken? One more invitation to reflect on, as you know I've done in our family service, to give you a chance to reflect and interact, whether at your table or with one another or just individually. If Jesus were to walk into this room today and behold it all, behold us, what would he say? As he looks into our eyes, what would he say? How would we respond to him? Take a moment to consider. 
And then we'll wrap this up. I know I cued that up maybe rather ominously, but if you don't believe that Jesus would walk into this room with a smile on his face, delighting in each one of you and in us collectively, looking into our eyes, sitting with us, singing with us, sharing fried chicken in a moment with us, lingering until the last one goes, probably getting into the kitchen and washing dishes. If you don't think that that's what Jesus the King would do, we need to reorient our mindset around who Jesus is. Now, from that relational connection, that love and that delight, he may have strong words for us collectively. And from that, we could receive them, hopefully. Words that would convict, challenge, yet encourage that to our soul we would know is right and is good and that he is with us. This is the king. This is the king. He has no regard for systems and structures and buildings and fame. And to those institutions, he may have very strong, harsh words. And he may seek to break them down, to crumble them. But to people who he calls sons and daughters, even brothers and sisters, his countenance is family. His heart is compassion. His response first is celebration. Right, The eve before his arrest and his crucifixion, what is he doing? He is eating a meal, a big meal. He's washing the feet of his disciples. He's praying with them. He's teaching them. He's with them. May he be with us today. May we, from that posture and that perspective, shaking our heads, because we would send him out. No, Jesus, don't be here. Go. Go make things right. Go bring your justice. Bring your mercy. Bring your healing. But he would never be swayed. He'd never be swayed by the things of men. He would dwell with his people in humility. This is our hope and our longing alongside his justice and his reign. The kingdom of God is near, and it is coming soon. Let's invite him to speak. I know one thing he would say that hasn't changed because it's the, one of the final things he says in the whole book. Behold, I'm making all things new. Take heart. I am making all things new. I am not done. Be with me. Walk with me and receive my presence my compassion, mercy, grace, and love. Be forgiven. Receive forgiveness again today. Each one of us needs to draw near to Jesus today to take a further step. Collectively, we'll share in communion. I'll invite the team to come. So Catherine, Tommy, David, come. We'll sing a couple songs to ready our hearts, and then we'll pause, and we'll partake in communion together. That is, I hope, emblematic of a heart step to draw nearer to Jesus, to continue in the journey. In some ways, it could be the beginning of a journey to say, I believe today. I don't know where my faith and belief will be tomorrow, but today I believe. And Jesus, help me with my unbelief. Help me receive you. Help me embrace you. So we'll sing a couple songs. We'll partake. If you haven't gotten a cup, 
They're there on the back tables. Feel free to move and to grab one. And just for those of us that are guests with us or haven't partaken all together with us, children, we believe, are welcome to the communion table, welcome to receive, wherever their faith may be. Understanding that it's more than a snack, it's not. And if we're not, if we're not past that level, then it's probably time to wait and have conversations with our children. But if there's a desire to partake in community, to lean into the love of God and the love of Jesus, not fully understanding or grasping it, does any of us know? Does any of us fully understand and grasp the mystery and the depth of what God has done and accomplished upon the cross and through the grave? And if we can say not yet, then we can still come in faith, so can all. So children and all who are desiring to draw nearer to Jesus are welcome today. Welcome. And we honor you parents as well as you lead your kids and determine when that right time and how that time works for communion. Please be free to do that. Let's sing, and then we'll come to the communion table together.